can never tell Yet I've been forced to weep It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we can see Can never tell With Brady and Rob Hi everybody, 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 and welcome to a long-awaited episode of Carnivorous Couch. Long-awaited. Yeah, I'm sorry we've been gone so long. Um, it's a spoilerful podcast with me, Rob, and Brady. And this week we're doing the Jinx, which, goddammit, Brady, I'm never letting you let me do like a miniseries again. <laughs> it's not a fucking movie; it's TV. Uh, yeah. So uh, we watched the Jinx over four different viewing sessions over. Uh, two months. Six parts. And uh, I don't think I remember much of it now, because it's been fucking m- uh, over months. <laughs> well, I think I can take you through some of what happens. See, in the first episode, Becky entered the cupcake competition, but accidentally substitutes cayenne pepper for sugar. The jinx. Cookie sprinkles. Okay, wait, well, we should explain that. Yeah, um, explain so, that. So we use Plex uh, to, you know, do our uh, our movie library here, or our TV show library at um, Turnover Studios, and it mismatched it with some horrible, like, rom-com, or, like, uh, magic witch cookie baking show from, like, the 90s, and it's just this picture of this... It looks um, a lot like the sister, the kleptomaniac sister in Breaking Bad. Like winking at the camera. Yeah, she's kind of smiling and looking up, like, oh, the jinx! Oh, this is so <laughs> silly, and Becky's gonna be mad. Becky accidentally puts special herbs in the picnic brownies. Everyone's gonna have quite a time on the, the jinx. jinx. So, um, why don't we go we'll watch that next? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, actually, um, Grupe was saying last night that he wants to come on and do, uh, Constantine. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, he should come on. Where is that, that Keanu Reeves? Mm-hmm. He said it's a phenomenal movie. Wow. Well, I like cigarettes really cool in this movie. Well, cool. So, so how to and who to summarize a six-part, four-hour-plus well, well, we open with, like, a dismembered body and, uh... In Galveston Bay, in, in a bay. Galveston, Texas. Yeah, and the guy, they're like, "This is gross," and then they they find him. Yeah, they find the dismembered limbs. They never find the head. Yeah, but they got the bow saw. Uh, well, then they find Robert Durst after some shit, and then they anyway, find the bow saw. Let me. Okay, so let's see how fast I can do this. So yeah, the first thing, this is uh, told out of order, uh, because. Uh, I think the reason is that this is the only time Robert Durst, our our main protagonist antagonist, was ever actually taken to trial for any of these crimes. Right. And so, yeah, they they tell the story of finding these dismembered limbs of an elderly man in Galveston Bay in Texas, and it leads to an initially very baffling chain of events where he was living next door to a woman. Uh, supposedly very homely woman and a mute woman at that named Dorothy Siner. 
And uh, their police work eventually reveals that Dorothy Siner was an alias of Robert Durst. Robert Durst, uh, to fill you in, is a very rich uh, real estate heir from New York. The Durst family owns uh, a phenomenal amount of property in New York. They're basically the most could be the most powerful fa powerful family in the city, uh, and so is it real estate or is it? Uh, yeah, I think it's real. Yeah, estate. it's real estate. They they own like properties in like Times Square and like the huge yeah. Buildings. Something about it like just reminded me of like newspaper printing or something like that. Too. I think they just straight up own skyscrapers. Oh, okay, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, so they're very very rich property family, and so basically we learned that Robert Durst was pretending to be this mute woman uh, had a very forgiving landlord who was willing to let this mute woman pay up in advance and didn't ask any questions because you know she was nice she paid in advance and she was quiet that's something a landlord looks for yeah i forget why was he being a mute woman oh well, we learned that soon but suffice to say he was running from something he wanted to go into hiding and so he picked a disguise and but i what i'm trying to re remember is was he on the lamb at that point in time um not yes and no he was never charged for the crime he was running from but he was trying to disappear from new york where and he the crime that he was running from was this second murder that we see which is the one in los angeles of uh susan oh right susan berman susan yeah. berman uh the mobster's daughter right and in fact maybe we best just Tell this. Uh, do we want to just tell the actual story sequentially rather than episode-wise? Well, that's, yeah. I, I guess we've done enough to sort of introduce it. So yeah, they they catch this man Robert Durst, but uh, as <laughs> the day of his hearing, he does go on the lam, drives back in the direction of New York. He stops over at this old house in uh, upstate New York, I think, where he and his wife, now deceased or long disappeared, used to live. And a neighbor finds him there on his birthday, just lost in a trance, looking out at the lake. And then, while still in the lamb, he goes into a Pennsylvania convenience store and shoplifts a hoagie and gets caught and is brought back to Texas for trial. And so this is sort of our well, He gets caught shoplifting the hoagie. He's not brought to Texas for the trial of shoplifting a hoagie. He's no, no. He's, figure he's, out, oh, back, it's you. he's brought back to Texas for uh, the trial that he ran from which is the murder of, uh, oh, shoot, what's his name? The old man who he lived next to. Oh, Fred. <laughs> no, no, Morris Black. Fred and Fred, Morris Black, that's right. So, uh, yeah, that was a weird one because you, you, could, you go through the trial and it's like, yeah, I, I totally killed the guy, and uh, but it was self-defense. So then I kind of uh, like... It's such a bizarre trial. Um, so, yeah, this is the first episode kind of foreshadows what we'll learn of in the fourth episode, which is the trial of uh, the killing of Morris Black in Galveston, Texas. Uh, but what we come to learn is that this guy has a very troubled history with his rich family and that he's connected to uh, a couple more murders uh, that have gone unsolved. And so... Uh, and namely we also his wife? <laughs> and namely his wife. And we also learn this is uh, a bit of a meta movie in a way, or one in which the documentarian is uh has a very strong role to play in it because he uh, starts documenting yeah. that he's making a documentary yeah <laughs> a big part of the story is that the director andrew Durecki, who did uh did you see capturing the freedmen no i didn't see it that's a good documentary really good, good documentary though. um 
the fact that he was even able to secure this interview is kind of a, a big deal because Durst's family, A, is rich and powerful and was trying to keep him from talking too much to anyone, and also Durst himself had been very reticent to talk to any of the major news networks. And so it was a big deal, and the idea is that Robert Durst himself wanted to kind of tell the story in his own words, uh, which is interesting uh, if you assume as I think we do, that he probably is behind some of these killings. There's a bit of an emboldened spirit in it that, well, I got away with it, but I don't just want to get away with it. Like, I, I have to go back and, like, fix it even more. Like, kind of a very... Uh, a yeah, strident. it's weird that he, like, even decided it was a good idea to still be interviewed about these things. Well, yeah, it's something at the heart of getting away with things is, like... Maybe he's just never satisfied. Well, I mean, if you're guilty, you're just going to try and get away with it uh, you're you're going to try and make yourself seem as not guilty as possible by not being afraid to talk about it, right? Right, but it's interesting because at that point he had nothing to lose. He wasn't on trial for anything else, and nothing to gain. No, uh, nothing to gain. Nothing to gain. Everything to lose. Everything to everything to lose. Everything to lose. Nothing to gain. Yeah. So anyway, uh, what we learn in the second episode is that yes, he. We're only on episode two. <laughs> yeah, we're on episode two. Uh, he had this kind of marriage that was nice at first. He was living in upstate New York and operating a small health food, food store and was kind of living this life that was very anathema to the life of his rich dad, uh, you know, who wanted him to run the family business at first. But actually, we also learned that the dad went with his the next in line, Douglas, and so there's a huge rift in the family between Robert and Douglas because he was passed over to run the business. And so... Robert, I guess, got away and tried to live this more idyllic, uh, normal person's life. Uh, and there's some talk of him, like, trying to fit in with a normal American family and kind of finding it awkward, uh, which is a lot of the story, in addition to being about the crimes, is about this kind of money divide in American society between those who have the money to get away with whatever they do, to do whatever they want, and the rest of us who have to live on our means. And so... We eventually learned that the marriage between Robert and his wife, Kathy, uh, Kathy, well, I guess she's just Kathy Durst for the purpose of the story, but I think uh, McCormick is the family name. Anyway, we learned that it eventually went sour, and one night uh, after going to a party that Robert didn't want her to go to, Kathy came home and then uh, disappeared and was never heard from again. The story, according to Robert Durst, is that she got on a train to go to their place in New York, and to attend a nursing school there where she had classes and that she was actually seen by a doorman there and after that she disappeared. Uh, what we learn though is that Robert just fudged a lot of these facts, a lot of the facts that corroborate this story, like he had a phone call with her. We learned that the doorman story is kind of unreliable and so maybe the last time she was seen was actually in upstate New York uh, when she was at Robert's house at their family home. And so you know, it's kind of funny, Brady, you're wearing a Chewbacca shirt, uh -huh. and there's like a, a wrinkle right where Chewbacca's mouth is, so when you straighten yourself up, it looks like Chewbacca's talking. <laughs> <laughs> With Brady and Rob. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, third episode. Third episode, we learn that uh, Robert might have enlisted the aid of a close friend and a, a mobster's daughter uh, named Susan Berman a woman living in L.A., uh, and, you know, we learn 
that perhaps she might have helped him dispose of Kathy's body in the New Jersey Pine Bear. Or just, or just, like, she just had somebody do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she had, exactly. She had the connection to arrange for, uh, for the body to be dumped there, it's strongly implied. Anyway, what we learn in that episode is that they had a very close friendship. She was living in L.A., uh, but eventually she started having money troubles, and at that point she was going to talk to the New York uh, District Attorney's Office, and uh, a few days after that she was murdered. And we don't know who by. But we don't know who actually murdered her. Yeah, we don't, we don't know how that happened. If Bob Durst murdered her, you know, why would Bob Durst be in New York? That's a really good Bob Durst thing. <laughs> Thank you. I, w- I did a Bob Durst for one of our... Uh, <laughs> oh, that's right, you did. <laughs> so, uh, but an interesting piece of evidence that's introduced at this point is that whoever murdered her sent a letter to tip the police off. The idea being that... Cadaver. Uh, yeah, cadaver... Uh, Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills with Beverly misspelled with an E. Right. And the idea is that, well, whoever this was, the person actually had a personal relationship to her, and even though they killed her, they wouldn't want her to be found completely decomposed. So they were, in a way, respecting the corpse of the person they murdered and trying to tip the police off. And according to Bob Durst, it also, he thinks, helped paint him in a good light because who would ever be crazy enough to do this? Like, it couldn't have been him because that would be crazy if he did it. Yeah. Tech. <laughs> it would be crazy for me to do that. So, and I'm not crazy. <laughs> so obviously. Yeah, well, that's a letter from a person who knows a cadaver. But, but Bob, people who are crazy don't know they're crazy. So you could be crazy just. To, well, I suppose that's true, but. <laughs> <laughs> the burping. <laughs> well, you could really fill up the entire podcast <laughs> doing impressions of this man uh, who has very, like, beady, shark-like eyes. I know, they're fucking creepy. But at the same time, like, we'll, well, we'll get into this more. Uh, it is almost perverse to say, but, like, he's a transfixing figure. Yes. And the first time you see him, like, I almost kind of liked him because he's, I think he's talking about, like, his brother hired a bodyguard to protect himself from Bob Durst. And the police are interviewing him like, well, why would your brother do that? He's like, because he's a pussy. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, this guy, this guy does not give a fuck. kind of dig it. I think my brother is a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Douglas is a pussy. <laughs> um, anyway, so, <laughs> hey, now we're to the fourth episode. Oh, we also learned, because this will be important, that uh, he became close with members of Susan's extended family, her stepson, I believe, right? and offered to put him through school. Uh, but there's some Culinary feeling children. that maybe this was an attempt to kind of buy his silence to not look into right. the matter. Uh, so there, at this point, we catch up to uh, where we came in, which is Texas. It was the Susan Berman murder that led Robert to go on the land because he was going to face a lot of scrutiny in New York. So he shaved his eyebrows, put on a wig, assumed the identity of Dorothy Steiner, and, uh, but eventually was caught when the body was found in Galveston Bay. Uh, so here we get to the trial, which is a really interesting, peculiar miscarriage of justice. Betty bakes cookies for the judge and jury. <laughs> 
but it doesn't work out as he planned. The jinx. <laughs> the judge is allergic to sprinkles. The jinx. Jacob Sprinkles. <laughs> Jacob Sprinkles. <laughs> anyway, actually, you can go on with the factual. So I'm just here for... Well, so, okay, so what happened was Robert Durst was acquitted of murder at this trial. Two interesting things that happened. First is this strange defense that they introduced, which is they didn't even try to say that Durst didn't kill and dismember Morris Black, his elderly neighbor. What they tried to paint instead is that uh, Morris was trying to blackmail him and so that it was all in self-defense. But the argument they make is, in considering self-defense, please do not consider the fact that the body was cut up after it was killed, which is crazy. Yeah, and it doesn't have anything to do with self-defense. I mean, that was after. It's like, well, yeah, but it <laughs> paints a picture. Like, no, 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 no. And this Texas jury, and uh, Texas, we think of the state that's so quick to, you know, send people away. To send mentally challenged people to be fried. Yeah, yeah. exactly. W- went whole hog for this defense. Which leads to the other curious thing, uh, and this is kind of meta in a way, too, because the film itself kind of allows this to happen at times. Bob is a transfixing figure, and we find ourselves in this interlocking war of, like, sympathy and anger with him because he is so strange and damaged. But what happened at the trial is that, like, they almost created this lovable, just dumb luck, like, uh, accident-prone figure out of him at the trial. Like, I think one of the attorneys, like, turned to his partner and was like, did they just laugh at Bob Durst? Like, this creepy fucking guy? Like, they're actually successfully managing to paint him as just, like, this entertaining figure? Very entertaining. Well, I I don't know about it. (laughs) Anyway, so, so we get to the fifth episode, uh, and the fifth episode is kind of about tying up the loose ends. We learn that, like, kind of tying into the sad money idea that, like, the Durst family, like, regardless of whether Bob was guilty or not, they never uh, attempted any outreach to the McCormicks, the family of Kathy. And so there's a, we get this kind of divide between classes again. And I, uh, I think a lot of the Durst family now feels bad. Like, yeah, wait, like, how dickish. Like, we didn't even, like, they were, like, our in-laws, and we didn't even attempt to, like, do the human thing and reach out to them because we were so interested in protecting Bob. And so that, it looks like the episode's just kind of like this character-building piece, but at the end, they drop the A-bomb, which is that the stepson of Susan Berman has a letter in his files that is misspelled, misspells Beverly in the exact same way as the cadaver note. Oh, right, yeah, that's the... Bam. That's that's the bam. Bam! And the sixth episode, sixth and final episode is all... Uh, and some people, like, people who don't like the movie, this is where they attack it, because directly the director really takes center stage in this one. Because it's all about him and his team plotting, like, okay, how do we catch Bob? How do we get him to actually admit that he wrote this letter that's misspelled, the same as the cadaver note? And so a lot of it is just kind of this game but it's really tense like because they're plotting how to do it right and they're like uh the other thing is that uh, he's just dodging them schedule you know yeah let's do it on monday yeah oh no i'm going to spain now i i 
I don't think we should do that. That would be right fine. Here. No. Yes. No. No. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so they Elliot Gold makes an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> they eventually get him in and they kind of slip in the envelope thing in a stack of other files. Like, okay, well, there are just these other documents, so for completeness sake, we just want you to, like, tell us about them. You know, who knows if we'll use it or not, just going through the, the loose ends. And so they actually do catch him and kind of get him to uh, admit that he actually doesn't know whether... He can't tell the difference between the cadaver note and the note he wrote. And at that point, Bob kind of starts belching and... Uh, freaking out a little bit, and they stop the interview, he goes to the bathroom, and the other big seismic moment is, uh, and this is foreshadowed in the fourth episode, uh, Bob isn't very good at knowing when his mic is still on. Uh, <laughs> well, you're caught. There it is. You know, Brady, you you have indigestion a bit, too, occasionally. Are, are you, do you have a murder that is forty percent homicide related. <laughs> but yeah, but so uh, I should say in the fourth episode when he's talking, getting interviewed about the trial, I think he's when everyone leaves, he's just sitting there rehearsing like I did not, I did not kill anyone, I did not. <laughs> and then his lawyer has to be like, "Your mic is on." Yep. And so it almost adds this like hubristic element to it, just like. You were warned once. Yeah, right. (laughs) What did you do? Killed them all, of course. There you go. And the burping. And then that's the end, right? Yeah, and that's the end. And he was uh, arrested uh, a couple days. Like two days days before before. that episode aired. Yeah. And that's it. Well, what about... Brady, how many times have you seen this? Uh, a few. You must hate it. No, no, I, I like it a lot. I, yeah, no, I, I really, really like it a lot. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm not always that into true crime, like, because we're flooded, we're inundated with stories. Yeah, Making a Murder is the new big one right now, right? Yeah, even though that's supposed to be good, I hear. And Serial. And, and yeah, th- and those are supposed to be good. But, you know, we get all the fucking... Dateline NBC, like we're we're up to our elbows in murder stories. This so man was on PCP, and then he went on a crazy rampage, and then he killed about six people, and then he found God, and now he's okay. Yeah. But <coughs> so what what makes this one work is a I think it gets what the best true crime stories do get. What you know, Truman Capote's in Cold Blood. What the more recent uh, like Zodiac kind of gets. Is true crime for me when it works has this feeling of kind of the the sadness of assembling minutia and how often it doesn't work and kind of looking beneath even looking at the murderer uh, himself or the murderers themselves and you get kind of these sad human stories that kind of fo- locate this like malaise and just kind of melancholy in the American soul uh, and so yeah and this move what in other words. Uh, to put it more briefly, I think a good true crime story that distinguishes itself from the rest of the pack is rooted in character. And I think we get a lot of character in this. Yeah, and also he's quite a character. Also more... He's a cat. 
He's quite a character. And we get this really interesting theme laced throughout it is it's also kind of a story of the perverting influence of money. And so like it, it's it's got some really thematic heft to it and an absolutely fascinating uh protagonist antagonist. So so no, I, I like it a lot. I think I give it an A minus. Alright, I give it a B. Uh it's it was good. I mean, but it's T V, it's not a movie. So we can't do that again. <laughs> it made it very <laughs> problematic to actually get the and it and it is I mean it attempts uh, in its changing aspect ratios and its use of various uh, kind of reenactment sequences or uh, old footage and this and that. You know, it can have a cinematic quality at times, but the thing is, it's TV. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, very, it's good. It's very good. But uh, if I was going to judge it on a filmic scale, it would get even lower, but we'll just be nice to it and say it's TV... And it's not a four and a half hour movie. Be nice to Bob Durst. <laughs> uh, so it's a B. That's a B. I liked it. Didn't love it. Didn't hate it. This um. Uh, make hello. it stick. Make it stick. Rob, this is Bob Durst. I heard you only gave my movie a B. Now why would you do this? Not a movie. It's a TV show. <laughs> Is that an Obama? That was an Obama. Well, Bob, I have to say, it had certain qualities. I'm not writing it off. What was it that you said about um, <laughs> the fucking how you speak like Obama? I think it's very important for a leader of the American people to speak with all the halting cadence of an old AOL download box. That's correct. Well, but like, <laughs> but what's it about, man? What's it about? Oh yeah. Well, we did. How did you like it? We had not Okay. What's it all about? <laughs> right? Yeah. What's it all? Shit. About? We still got to record a drop for that. We're really fucking not doing so good on this podcast. We'll, we'll be better. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so what is it all about? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to have a real hard time thinking of things to say about this thing, Brady. Um, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's about Bob Durst. Uh, it's about his affluence and his sense of entitlement. He basically just feels like he can walk through life and do whatever he wants. And uh, uh, eventually, he could just come up and but at like the age of 70-something. So not really... <laughs> He's going to die anyway. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll echo what you say, but I think there's there's a real richness here in the way it kind of explores. There's a, yeah, there's thematic richness because to me it is about the perverting influence of money. And that's not just the ability to, you know, afford two of the best lawyers in the country. Uh, you know, like, that's such a funny to was like they they were gonna go with one of the best lawyers and they couldn't decide so they hired the two most expensive lawyers in the country um, to you know arrange a sham trial to yeah. get you off. weren't they very Texasy? Uh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I don't know if uh the board uh, guilty or innocent, but uh, that's what the crowd's gonna find out. And uh, yeah. 
<laughs> good to be good. Uh, yeah, make a lot of money. He's a smooth talking lawyer. <laughs> no, yeah, so, but, yeah, and that's kind of the more obvious way that, like, yeah, you would imagine, like, oh, well, if you can afford the best legal defense in the country, you're probably going to have a good chance of getting off. But there's kind of a sadness, too, because if you even think of how the story starts, like, he tries to go live a not-rich person's life in upstate New York, and even then, like, you have instances of the family trying to interfere with that. You have the really sad thing about, you know, once this rich son is accused of murder or is thought to be implicated, that family, with all their means, can't be bothered to do anything for the poor family of this dead woman. It's about the way money divides us in a lot of ways, I think. And then just the way that kind of, like, it perverts even the people who have it. Like, I think Bob is as strange as he is in a lot of ways because of the way the class system and the society is yeah, set Yeah, he's up. a product of his affluence. Right. And if he didn't have that, he might, he probably wouldn't have been him. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, and I'm not even trying to say it. Like, I know the second episode title is, like, Poor Little Rich Boy, and I'm not even trying to go there. Like, if you have money, like, you've got a lot of privilege. I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm saying more on a grand scale, the very idea of how the class system is divided uh, leads to some really interesting, bizarre mutations in in the way we treat each other. Yeah. And I think that's here in this. Right. And uh, there's, uh, I think that episode that was titled Poor Little Rich Boy, kind of like, uh, what does it do? It uh, kind of... That, that's where we learn, I didn't say that, like, his, he echoes, watched his mother commit suicide. Right. Echoes that sentiment. Right. About his detachment from his family and... Right. And just like how he never quite became cool with that. Yeah, and kind of the very like Shakespearean almost power struggles of the older brothers passed over for the next in line. Right. And I just sound stupid. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, made him. Money, him. man. Yeah, did it to him. What do you think, Chewbacca? <laughs> I am Groot, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh,. Uh, let's do understudy. Okay. That way you can say more things. Say and more we can, things. And we can do uh, metacritical. Yeah. Uh, bringing up that murder? The burping. We're so sorry if we couldn't get the actor. To do the scene from this screenplay, but we got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to get the actors, try to get the movies. Tweet us at C A R N Y Cal. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Uh, I totally blanked on the voice out. Permission to come aboard. Oh, right there. You've got shoes on. This is perfect right here. Yeah, that's that's the one. Okay. See that? Fucking mesmerizing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My own kids would kill for one of those. How are you? Fantastic. I mean, admittedly, the bee ain't exactly the cron, but fuck it, like, do you want a drink? I don't have anything blue, but I've got... Don't worry about that. No, don't worry about it. It's no bother at all. 
Nobody comes by from the old days. Cheers to your health and mine. Mostly mine. So what's new? I've been thinking. Somebody should write a book. <laughs> Somebody should write a fucking book, that's for sure. About, about what? About Zodiac. It's not new. I've been thinking that if you, uh, if you put all the information together, maybe you could you'd jog something loose. And I was thinking, uh, you know the case the best. Yeah, that's true. And you know all the players, and you have all the files. Mm, lost them. You lost them? Or I tossed them, I don't know. I moved on to a boat. You know, we work in the daily business, right? As in today. What do you think we were doing back then? More people die in the East Bay commute every three months than that idiot ever killed. He asked a few citizens and he wrote a few letters and he faded into a footnote. <laughs> Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. It was four years ago. Let it fucking go. You're wrong. It, it's important. Then what did you ever do about it if it was so important? What did you ever do? You hovered over my desk. You stole from my waste baskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right. I forgot. You went to the library. Oh, fucking Christ. I'm sorry I bothered you. There was a study. Read us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y House. Hey, everybody. We're back. I mean, we didn't leave. We're doing this all in one one take now. One take. One take now. One take now. Uh, like Emmanuel Lubezki. So, I don't know. Should we keep talking about this movie? Should we talk about some other movies? I mean, this TV show? Um. Do you got stuff to say? I'm kind of lost on what to say. <laughs> I, because, well, that's the thing about documentaries, and I know you don't agree with this, but it's really hard for me to look at documentaries in terms of cinematicness and stuff like that because, you know, it's not contrived that you're just piecing things together that existed and it, you might be lucky to have, like, a good shot. It's just like, oh, this, this guy was filming this interview with a fucking artist. But, <laughs> well, but other than, you know, that, it's really... I mean, the thing I get really get into about film is like, oh, look at the way that was framed. Oh, this guy's small. This guy's big. This guy's, you know. Well, what about the art of editing? Yes, yes, editing's cool. Ed so, yeah, in, in a way, <laughs> editing takes uh, more takes the foreground in a documentary, I guess, in a good one, which is why the bad, boring ones, you often hear the insult, they're talking head documentaries, they're just this subject talking, then this guy, right. then this guy. Uh, and so, yeah, the the best one... And then they do some images with the yeah. voiceover. And <laughs> like... <laughs> But that's gonna be good if the information's good. It's usually just you just listen to it. It's like it'd be good to have on while you're cooking. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean like it's valuable if you're getting good information. But see, that's what I'm talking about is the really good ones also kind of become artistic themselves. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not artfully done. It's just not the kind of art that I look at and go, you know, yeah. like that's cool, man. <laughs> I don't do that with this genre. The true crime doc genre. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, but like that shot and it follows, right? We sleep and then all our friends are there. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's cool, <laughs> man. 
He needed more glamour shots of Bob Dirk. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, there was a couple where they were just, like, following him around, walking around outside the building. Oh, yeah. I guess you need shots of me walking in front of this building. They told me not to walk in front of it anymore. <laughs> it's okay. It's for the movie. It's, uh, yeah, TV show. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um... Well, did you see any other documentaries this year? Let's talk docs in general. Uh, Deep Web, which actually touches okay. on some of the same stuff that this touches on, like uh, kind of manipulation of the justice system. It's about Ross Ulbricht, who a couple months ago was sent to prison for life. For life? For selling do? drugs. He ran the Silk Road. Okay. Which was that, like, black market place. And so he, like, three counts of, like, conspiracy, I think Kingpin was one of the charges. I didn't know that was a charge. Sounds like, like a compliment. Yeah, and the conspiracy to sell, like, drugs. But basically, he's a drug dealer, and he went to jail for life. So you are guilty of being a fucking badass. Yeah. <laughs> now you go to jail for life. It's kind of like uh, that old uh, mugshot of Frank Sinatra and... The crime that he was charged with was seduction. <laughs> like it's not even illegal anymore. I think it's just like <coughs> trying to go after the spouse of a person who's married <laughs> and being a pimp and wooing them. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I was, I was guilty of uh, saying some sweet nothings and singing at this and lady, just crooning into face. Oh, <laughs> baby, yeah. <laughs> we need more badass crimes like that. Exactly. Uh, so that was good. Uh, you saw The Look of Silence, which I don't know. We got like stoned that night, and then you were going to watch The Look of Silence. I'm like, I can't feel. <laughs> no, no, in no universe is this is ever you know, a fun movie to watch. Act of Killing, in a way, is more has more surrealist existence, even though it's equally gutting, I'd say, because it's about the same thing. But... Uh, I think maybe the fact that it's all so bizarre uh, makes it easier to watch. Because, yeah, Look of Silence is really an unadorned look at that genocide. I'm sure I've watched some other stuff. I'm just trying to pull it up, see what I watch. I watched, like, 35 movies so far. i got, like, 15 to go. Uh, well, here, Ed, let's talk. This is a good time to say that I think Amy is really overrated. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that. I, I She's going to win everything. I kind of didn't want to... I just didn't want to watch, like, a talented person destroy themselves for two hours. I so did. I didn't see it. I did want to do that. I watched a great movie that is about that, and it's called Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That was good. Yeah. I haven't watched Soaked in Bleach yet, though. So. What's Which that? I hear, it's the other Kurt Cobain documentary. Okay. That is alleging that Courtney did some shit. Okay. Um, which, I mean, I, what I hear is, eh, it's not really that, uh, it's very compelling, so it's interesting to watch, but it's not really that based in sound logic. Right. It's like, she was doing crazy shit, because she was a drug addict, so maybe she did crazier shit? Because who would do crazy shit if they weren't a murderer? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and I haven't seen it yet, so... That this is not an informed opinion, but it's kind of like drug addicts get pretty crazy when they're like really into the full swing of it. Like their brain shuts off, and then they just babble weird shit and like 
She's like, but her story didn't corroborate itself. I'm like, she's a drug addict. <laughs> At the time. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, Montage of Heck was really good. Yeah, no, that was, I thought that was great. Um, who did that? Um, John Hanks? No. Uh, it's a new guy. Or it's not someone who's Hanks. done a lot of stuff. Something Hanks. Uh, his name escapes me. Yeah, actually, back when we were still on a good schedule for the thing, I wanted to have that guy uh, call in. I was talking to him on Twitter about it. Uh, the guy, the director of Montage, Montage of, of Heck. Heck. Yeah. Wow, cool. But now I can't remember his name. <laughs> Tell him he made a great movie. Uh, yeah, like, all right, let me just beat up on Amy for a second. Because, <laughs> like, Montage of Heck is such a beautifully stylized piece of work that, like, actually manages to get into Cobain's head to me. I just don't get all the praise for Amy, which is, like, a similar thing of watching poor Amy Winehouse kind of dwindle away. And it's, you know, a lot is being made of the fact that it's all, like, footage taken by your friends. It's all iPhones and all that, which is cool. Like, yeah, it's great to be able to stitch art together out of this new way that we're recording stuff. But it makes, like, to me, like, such, so much less of an attempt to actually get under the skin of Amy Winehouse. And Montage of Heck just, like, put me inside of Kurt Cobain completely. And was, like, super inventive with all the animations and shit. Like, I just don't get why one is getting all the awards and the other is not even getting nominations. Rant. Hashtag rant? Hashtag rant. All right. Uh, Metacritical? Yeah. Ah. Metacritical. Rob's never gonna win. Metacritical. But he's a again. So it's time to play. Ooh-hoo. I'm gonna lose today. Ooh-hoo. Hey everybody, we're going to play Metacritical, so uh, starting with uh, Jarecki, because he was the guy in this thing, right? Yeah. I was going to go with one of his movies, I was just trying to pull up what movies he made. Capturing the Freedmans, or as we learned in the Jinx, he, he made a fictional movie of Robert Durst. Which uh, I didn't point out is what kind of brought them together. Called All Good Things, yeah. All Good Things with Brian Gosling. Yes, yes, that's the one I wanted to start with. Okay. Now we can people hop. I need a pen. Pick it up. I'm going to need some money, too. Just whatever you got on you. Yeah, make a hail. Okay, so... All Good Things. Um... I don't know anything about this movie. I mean, I know what it's about. It was in 2010. I didn't hear about it until I saw this. I'm going to guess that it didn't have that much going for it. So I'm going to give it 72. Pretty high for Metacritic. But. Um, I know it has its defenders, but I also hear that it's flawed in some ways. Uh, mainly the acting got singled out, I think. Which makes sense, because Jurecki's a documentarian. That's his bread and butter. Uh, I, I'm going to go with, like, 55. 55, okay. 
You're too close. It's 57. So you don't you don't get that score because you're, you're too close. What did, close, I, what did I give rough. it? 72. Yeah. Damn. That's what the. I can't do math right now. Uh, that's, uh, 15. <laughs> oh, well, I was, I, was counting, I was gonna say like 23, which doesn't make any sense. That's incorrect <laughs> math. <laughs> okay. Where can we hop to from there? Uh, you can hop to Gosling, you can hop to Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, let's go Kirsten Dunst to uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Okay. That's a tough one. Uh, did you guess first? No. Uh, you guess first, Buster. There you go. Uh, that got you really, go. got really good reviews. I'm going to go 90. 90, okay. I'm going to go 86. Eighty-nine. Okay. What did you say? Ninety, and I said eighty-six. Yeah. All right. Hot. Are you picking movies? Um. Mark Ruffalo. No wait. Tom Wilkinson in the bedroom. Where he did in the bedroom? I think. I do remember. Once. Um. You're like damn, because I know the score on that one. Let's go. Uh, okay, fine. Let's go with, you know. You know. <laughs> no, you know. Come on, guys. You know. <laughs> you uh, know. Let me go. Norman. One. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, okay, so tell, uh, Going with Mark Ruffalo? Yeah, going to the Hulk? Uh, no. Alright, we'll pick faster then, Dick. Mark Ruffalo (laughs) in... Um... The kids are alright? No, we've done that one. Haven't we? Yeah, why don't we go Jim Carrey? And we'll go to... Well, Jim Carrey to, um... The Magicians. Or no, not the Magicians. That's the that's the Mitchell and Webb one, but the other one, the other magician one, like Terrell. There you go. All right. Bert Wonderstone. What do you think? Uh, I think like forty-five. <sighs> I actually kind of liked that movie. It was all right. Um, forty-five seems a little low to me, but then Metacritic. So let's go with thirty-seven. Wow. Forty-four. Oh, wow. What did you say? Forty-five. Fuck you. Man. Okay. I think you've been no more than two away. Correct. So if, if you hit, <laughs> like, <laughs> hit a, bullseye, a bullseye, you might have a positive score. 
Oh, that was just so cool. <laughs> Alright, that was just Steve Carell, I guess. Ooh, Big Short? Uh, you, you know what that is. That's new, yeah. I, I just thought of a score of that. Yeah. I think it's an 81. He was really good in that. Yeah, I, like, Bale got nominated. Shaping up to be my Could've favorite movie of this year. Favorite? Well, well I mean, I mean, favorite movie that people will have seen that's not an Iranian film, but it's about time to see. Pinocchio. His Bad name is spelled way too close to the word Pinocchio. <laughs> or Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the big, well, okay, so no, the big short. Big short. No. <laughs> no. Little short. Little big man. Little short. Uh, no, no, but what, what do we get with this? One more thing. Oh, Corel. What's the Corel in? Uh, 51st Dates? No. Yeah. That's Sandman. What is? What else has Carell been in? Forty-year-old version. version Foxcatcher. Yeah. yeah, that's the forty-year-old version. Okay. Forty-year-old uh, version. That's a Judd Apatow movie, isn't it? Judd. 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 Probably got eighty-two. <laughs> yeah, I see. I love that movie, but I think it got less score than I would want it to. I'm going seventy. The answer is 73. Okay. Ah, you were more than two off that time. Yeah, Take that. Damn it. Two, one, one, three. How many, uh, things is that? That's four. That's four. Yeah, one more. One more. Okay, the Tower of Steve. Tower of Steve, alright. Um, who I made that, that movie? Who's in that? <laughs> oh, well, it's Donald Logue. Yeah. Well, he smoked weed for breakfast and some other stuff he says to him. <laughs> oh god. Um uh, uh you go. You go. You, you go. go. Uh let me go like I'll go seventy. Again. Seventy? Eighty. Seventy. I both read. Yes. Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> I think you get ten points off, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so wait. Yeah. Oh wait, so okay, you said eighty one. Alright, let me tally this. I think I know who won. Let me tally this. <laughs> <laughs> podcast legs back on. It's kind of hard to walk on this boat right now. All right. Rob. Yeah. Minus 45. I don't normally have to say the minus, but this time I have a plus three. So you have, so your overall offness is I, I gained, less than, I have yeah. positive. So does that carry over to the next game? No. Okay. No, this is special. I wouldn't want to gamble it anyway. This is going on the refrigerator. 
52 minutes, that's that's enough. <laughs> this is 52 minutes for our longest feature ever. <laughs> yep. Well, we haven't done Lawrence of Arabia yet. True. That is a movie with big cinematic shots. I just watched that one, actually. I would love to see that in 70 millimeter. Uh, yeah, that was I saw The Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter. Oh, now I'm spoiled. I watched the live upstream color right after that, and I'm like, this is bullshit. This is shot on some stupid digital camera. Looks like shit. Looks like a glorified student project. No, it's a really interesting movie, but yeah, that's really it good. looks overly indie. I, 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 no, sorry, um, dude who made Primer and that. Uh, no, you're good. You're good, Shane Carruth. But uh, I just I got spoiled by film. Cause I remember I just remember going to fucking movies. God damn it, I'm doing too much. I just remember going to fucking... I gotta stop doing that. Uh, I just remember going to movies <laughs> when I was a kid, and they all looked like that. Like, you know, the, uh-huh. the blurred edges, and, and you were just like, oh, right, this is a theater. And you know what I think the conspiracy is? is it's not... It's Well, it's not a conspiracy, but it's not because um, 4K is better. And it's not. 4K is 2,000 lines re- resolution films, like five or more. Uh, and up to seven, depending. But it's not that it's cheaper, even though it is, but I think it's just they want movies in the home and on your phone and in the theater to be the same thing. Right. I think they want this cohesiveness because it becomes easier to sell the same movie over and over again if they miss it in the theater run. Well, I'll buy it on Blu-ray or like a Netflix or Apple store, whatever. But, uh, yeah, uh, 4K UHD resolution at home, not as much as the theater, but only just like Yeah, but Upstream Color, that's a good movie. That, the way to watch that, I think, if I watch it again, I want to watch it on headphones, because it's a sound movie. Yeah, the, the score is really good. Um, just like and that's kind of his thing. He he does scores. Um, I think my issue with it was it was a little too vague. Like, primer is vague, um, but it makes sense if you really get into it. And I think this makes sense too. But he made it. It was weird when I watched that. I came up with the phrase vagueness is the genesis of pretension. Uh-huh. Which is like, you know, just being vague and saying, no, no, really, it's deep. I don't want to explain all of it because I don't want to give it away. That's like, the, you know, the seed of, of pretension, of being pretentious. Interesting. So that's I felt like it was kind of a little pretentious. I, th- I got something cohesive enough out of it, but there are things that are just like, uh, why, what does that mean? Right. Like, Plot-wise, it's more like, plot-wise, it's like, okay, pig farmers and all that. I mean, uh, I, I understood that the, um, you know, that they put the, the thief put the 
fucking worm into their face, and then it goes into a pig after that. Right. And then the pigs were experiencing what they were experiencing. They were linked with the pigs. Yes. And at some point, the pigs were drowned, and then they were, like, experiencing the feelings of ancient plants. Yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. See, plot-wise, I think it, I like the movie as, like, uh, an art piece about, like, trauma or rape. And, like, the plottier stuff is just, like, I, I don't even take the movies plot-wise that much. <laughs> I like how this, uh podcast on the jinx has turned into one about uh live upstream color yeah <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool uh what should we do next week um next week uh you know it's about the time that when i suggest movies that came out this year even though you've seen a bunch of them already yeah we're, we're doing pretty okay i haven't seen mustang yet that's a, that's a good movie you see creed that. yet i did see creed that's, that's i liked it i liked it a lot yeah um Alone, probably winning the Oscar in a few weeks. So, what, what we got suggestions? We got Constantine as one. Okay, so you, you're throwing out Constantine, Mustang. Um, what would I really like to hear or see again? I would like to have some cake. And eat it too. Yeah. So you can't you can't think of anything else <laughs> to suggest. <laughs> um, no, I can because I'm suggesting. Um, Once for warriors. Mumbly Joe. Mumbly Joe. That is that a thing? No, nah, that's that's Homer Simpson's name for Bob Dole. <laughs> Okay, so what do I have uh, from this year left to watch? Oh, you know what? Uh, listen to me, Marlon. That's what I'm throwing out. Okay, that's in there. Let's do that, because that's in my thing. So we'll do that next week. Another doc. Oh, shit. Doc? God damn it. You said yes. Is it Marlon Wayans? You said yes. No, no, Brando. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Wayans is going to make a parody of... <laughs> 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 Marlon, Marlon, the fish. I've never been <laughs> less happy that Marlon Wayans <laughs> listens to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll have to happen now. Uh, and, uh, as always, you can suggest movies for us to watch on our website. But anyway, everybody watch Listen to Me, Marlon, and then uh, we'll talk about it next week. Uh, maybe we'll periscope that one. And shit will be put more together up, up there. Up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ross Murray, theme song. Can never tell. Shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we can speak. Can never tell. With Brady and Rob. <laughs> Yes, Douglas is a pussy.